In the last few weeks, the Black Lives Matter uprising across the United States have sparked solidarity protests around the world. After centuries of structural inequalities and racism in the US, and with Trump's catastrophic handling of the COVID-19 pandemic, deep-seated anger over yet another police killing of a black American has ignited a wave of anti-racist resistance, not just in America, but in this country and many others. In this episode, we'll be looking at the US political crisis and the internationalist response. How did we get here? What are the opportunities for this moment? And what does the future hold? Dorothy Guerrero, Head of Policy at Global Justice Now, chairs a panel consisting of Abdul Al-Kalimat, African-American activist, scholar and author, Walden Bellow, Filipino public intellectual and activist, and Liz Fikete, Director of the Institute of Race Relations in London. Welcome to the Global Justice Now podcast. Hello, everyone. Uh, those For those that are joining us in, in Asia, good evening. For those attending us in North America, good morning. And for those in Africa and here in, in the UK, uh, good day to all of you. Thank you for joining us today in our webinar on the U.S. political crisis. My name is Dorothy Guerrero. Um, I'm head of policy with Global Justice Now. I will be your facilitator today. And I am joined by three brilliant speakers who will uh, give us um, three perspectives on the, on the issue and at, this, at the situation now. We can see that um, the mobilizations or protests in the, in the U.S., which is now on its second week, is still drawing, uh, it's still on fire. The U.S. seems to be on fire. And uh, there's a lot of uh, people joining the daily protest. Um, I, wa- I, wa- I was preparing this, this um, an hour ago and, and um, doing the last minute preparation. I was reminded that uh, we have this supporter briefing in 2007 which we publish, um, and we mentioned then, the briefing, as you can see, is titled The Dangers of Trump. And we wrote then that no US president has aroused the same level of global outrage before even occupying the White House as Donald Trump. And then today, we could see that after all his um, economic policies, the way that that he handled COVID-19 pandemic, and also the, um, the consistent um, handling uh, of, of black people by the police. Uh, for almost two weeks now, people are gathering in huge demonstrations in US cities and worldwide to protest this racist policing. There are calls too for defunding the police, which is now being discussed, I read this morning, by the Minneapolis Council. Yesterday, Local Black Lives Matter in Bristol pulled down the statue of Edward Colston. Colston was a 17th century slave trader who has numerous landmarks named after him in Bristol. It seems that for people here in the UK and and also in the US as I could see, um, the the years of trying to change policies, of trying to to, to change on on the level of governance is failing and people are now moving and changing things with their feet 
for attending the protest with their hands pulling down statue and with warm bodies um, in the um, in the daily protest and globally it seems that Martin Luther King's famous notion or famous um, um, words that injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere is making it loud and, and clear. So for, for today's event, we have three speakers um, and I will introduce them one by one. We have three parts in this webinar. The first part will be um, the presentations of the speakers. Each of them will have 10 minutes to say their main message. And, um, and then we will have a part two, which, we, which would be a more directed questions to each of them, follow up from what they presented. And then we will have part three, which is the Q&A. So uh, without much further ado, I would like to introduce our first speaker. So we have um, Professor Abdul Al-Kalimat. Uh, his birth name is actually Gerald McWhorter. He's a lifelong scholar activist and the founder of the field of Black studies and author of many books and papers about Black liberation. He wrote the first college textbook for the field, Introduction to Afro-American Studies, which has seen seven editions. So I, it's a great honor to, to have Abdul in the webinar. So I'll give you the floor now, Abdul. I just want to first start by saying, uh, expressing my appreciation for being included on this panel. Clearly, this is a very important moment in the, the political and cultural history of the United States. This is a mass movement moment. Uh, underlying this is four fundamental contradictions. First, of course, is the social crisis of social justice and the racist police murders that have been taking place in the United States. We also have the pandemic, which is a health crisis exposing the class contradictions in the, in the health service of this country. And third, of course, is the economic crisis and the slowdown and the jobs uh, cutback that has occurred. And last, of course, is the global realignment taking place with the Trump retreat uh, from US global hegemony. So we've got these underlying contradictions that are fueling uh, this mass uh, outpouring of protests. This is a new moment, and I want to just give some description of the, of the moment. Uh, when there was a great uh, struggle in the South in the United States, Malcolm X reminded us that the real crisis in the United States was south of the Canadian border. Uh, it was the entire country. And James Baldwin, uh, made an interesting comment regarding the civil rights movement when he said, who wants to integrate into a burning house? In other words, he was pointing to the fundamental crisis of the overall society. One of the important things that's happening in the United States is there's a demographic transformation taking place. Right now, secondary and elementary school populations are majority black and brown. Uh, the population under, under 30 years of age is majority black and brown in the United States. Uh, in the next 20, 30 years, that will be true for the entire population. So there's a reorientation to the uh, Eurocentric orientation of the United States. And that is underlying many of these uh, crises that we're experiencing. When Obama was elected, that led to a polarization on the basis of racism in this country. The, uh, uh, the emergence of Trump 
uh, has been a constant polemic against Obama. Uh, the appointment of racist, unprepared judges, uh, very conservative judges throughout the country. Uh, the rise of a fascist element in Congress, the Tea Party and the Freedom Caucus. Uh, so we have now this polarization that is increasingly becoming public and institutionalized. The mass mobilizations that we're experiencing today have been building. In 2011, we had the Occupy movement, which targeted the 1%. It was a direct target against Wall Street and against capital. Two years later was the emergence of, in 2013, the Black Lives Matter movement. And then after that, in 2017, after the election of, of Donald Trump, we have the Me Too movement and the massive outpouring of women and uh, their allies in the struggle. I mean, in Chicago, for example, alone, there were over 100,000 people in that demonstration. Uh, so we have this, this uh, buildup and this mobilization. Now, with regard to police murders, Malcolm X grassroots movement issued a report that was really startling, and the whole country had to wake up to the fact that police and security forces were killing black people on a daily basis. So this is part of the political culture of the United States, the, the racist murder of black people. In 2014, think of these names, Eric Gardner, Michael Brown, Tamir Rice, Freddie Gray. These are just a few of the people that had massive outpourings of resistance in their local areas and throughout the country. Which leads us to George Floyd in, in Minneapolis. Minnesota is in a northern part of the country. It's viewed as a more uh, liberal place compared to the south, compared to Mississippi and Alabama. But what we see as a result of George Floyd is that the racism has been concentrated there much like it has been throughout the entire country. The video is part of the new moment. It's our moment here, we're having a webinar. The video of George Floyd was the spark that established this prairie fire that's spreading throughout the country. The black response, the Latino response, but something I wanna mention, there was a Bernie Sanders movement in the electoral process that unleashed young people uh, to become politically active. When Saunders had to uh, pull out of the race, that silenced the Saunders base. The George Floyd demonstrations is unleashing the Saunders base to hit the streets. This is a very important development from the, from the electoral process now to the streets. And I want to point out two, dynam two dynamics in the, in, the, in the mass movement. On the one hand, what we had were what sociologists called the commodity riots. People were attacking retail stores. This was a confrontation of the masses of people with the lowest level of capital that they could access. But what was important is it moved from the commodity riots and the retail stores to actually a direct confrontation with the state. They burned down a police station third precinct in Minneapolis, and then moved to the fifth precinct for demonstrations, burning down police cars throughout the entire country. This is something new, this direct confrontation with the state. 
On the other hand, the nonviolent protest, which is very much a part of the civil rights movement and the political culture, it, it is the question of quantity to quality. The massive demonstrations now that have taken place over 14 days in its multicultural diversity and its transgenerational diversity raises the question of what is going to be the future. Will we be able to sustain the street protests or ritualize them? What will be the new definition of July the 4th, which is the Independence Day in the United States? How will the movement redefine that? Will people vote? What happened with the Bernie Sanders campaign is the young people that he expected to vote did not vote. And young people do not vote in the United States at a higher level. Of course, many people don't vote in the United States. Will the vote occur? But it's also true that even if the vote occurs, what is Trump going to do? Is he going to leave office? Is he going to steal the election? These are fundamental questions that are now being debated in the United States. And lastly, of course, and most profoundly, is the question of the working class. Right now, what we have is a decline in trade unions. We have a decline in uh, militant working class leadership. We have a decline in the importance of the working class in the Democratic Party because the corporate wing of the Democratic Party is the dominant, overall dominant force. And so the question is, will the youth in the streets be able to connect with the working class in order to bring forward the kind of movement that might have a chance to transform the country? And that's really the crisis that we face right now. Uh, we have the street demonstrations, which is very much a part of the political culture of this country and the world. Uh, but as we know, uh, it's going to be very difficult to sustain the fight in the streets. The question is, uh, will the force in the streets be able to consolidate uh, and focus uh, to challenge the state in fundamental ways? Uh, I think this is the question before us. Okay, uh, thank you, Abdul. Um, you have given us um, the, your initial presentation, these main messages that you mentioned, is, is both um, a reminder and a challenge that in protesting and making change happen, uh, it's both, uh, it's not a sprint, but it's also uh, like a marathon uh, event. If we could sustain and, and be re uh, resilient and at the same time develop um, strong and, and the sharp strategies, um, the changes would happen. And, and also, I think one, one, what the U.S. situation is also saying is that um, people have said enough. Uh, they have enough of the violence, they have enough of inequality, and they, they truly want to change. For the second um, speaker, I would like now to call um, Walden Benio. Um, Walden has been a leading figure of progressive movements in the Global South for over 40 years. He was awarded the Right Livelihood Award, which uh, in the activist circle is alternative Nobel Prize for his work exposing the realities mm. of, um, of globalization, the inequality of trade, and, and how the, the South is recolo recolonized through trade and, and financial regime. Um, and in his work, what is also known to many who know him well, 
is, is his um, critique as well of U.S. domination, uh, U.S. power that extends uh, to different continents and uh, changing, altering politics um, of countries that are in, in being impacted by, UK, by, by U.S. politics. So now I would like to call Walden on his presentation. Well, thanks, uh, Dorothy, and hello to my fellow panelists and to everyone. I'd like to address the relationship between racism, the U.S. system of capitalist democracy, and war. Uh, let me sum up my main point. Uh, racism is structurally inscribed into the political economy of the United States and has been an essential feature of its global expansion. This racial inscription is particularly evident in the wars of conquest that the U.S. has waged in Asia. Pardon my Christian references, but let me say that the political economy of the United States is built on two original sins. Uh, one was the genocide of Native Americans, the main function of which was to clear the ground for the implantation and spread of capitalist relations of production. The second was the central role played by the slave labor of African Americans in the genesis and consolidation of US capitalism. These original sins have had such a foundational role that the reproduction and expansion of US capitalism over time have consistently reproduced its racial structures. So powerful were its racial impulses that providing the legitimacy necessary for capitalist democracy to function necessitated the radical ideological denial of its racial structures. This radical denial was first inscribed in the Declaration of Independence message of radical equality among men that was drafted by the so-called founding fathers that included slaveholders, and later in the ideology that the mission of the United States imperial expansion was to universalize that equality among the non-European, non-white societies. Why do I focus on war? First, because war is a central element in the political economy of global capitalism. Second, because it has been said that the way a nation wages war reveals its soul, what it's all about, or to use that much derided term, its essence. The deadly interplay of racism, genocide, and radical denial at the heart of American white society that I referred to above was specially evident in America's Asian wars. Let's start with the Philippines, which was invaded and brutally colonized from 1899 to 1906. In charge of the enterprise were the so-called Indian fighters, like General Arthur MacArthur and Frederick Funston, that brought to the archipelago the genocidal mentality that accompanied their warfare against Native Americans in the American West. Filipinos were branded as niggers by U.S. troops, though another racist epithet, gugus, was also widely used for them. When Filipinos resort, resorted to guerrilla warfare, they were dehumanized as barbarians practicing uncivilized warfare in order to legitimize all sorts of atrocities against them. The war of subjugation was carried out without restraints, but at the same time that it was killing some 500,000 Filipinos, Washington was justifying its colonization of the archipelago as a mission to extend the benefits of democracy to them. Rudyard Kipling's Take Up the White Man's Burden, written in 1899 to glorify the American conquest of the Philippine archipelago, resonated throughout white America. The war in Europe waged by the United States during the Second World War was promoted among the American public at the time 
as a war to save democracy. This was not the case in the Pacific theater where all the racist impulses of American society were explicitly harnessed to render the Japanese subhuman. There was a racial side to the Pacific War that gave it an intensely exterminationist quality. Both sides painted the other as barbarians and people of inferior culture in order to license atrocities of all kinds. Violation of the rules of the Geneva Convention was a norm, with neither side preferring to take prisoners or when prisoners were taken, they were subjected to systematic brutality. Even as the U.S. waged war against Japan, it waged a domestic war against Americans of Japanese descent, declaring them outside the pale of the Constitution and incarcerating the whole population, something that was unthinkable when it came to Americans of German or Italian descent. Perhaps the most radical expression of the racial exterminationist streak of the American war against Japan was the nuclear incineration of Nagasaki and Hiroshima in August of 1945 an act that would never have been entertained when it came to fellows of the white race like the Germans. The Korean War of 1950-53 also saw the dialectic of racism, genocide, and denial come into play. The war was justified as one of saving Koreans from communism, but it came close to exterminating them. General Douglas MacArthur, who was Supreme Commander, advocated the use of nuclear weapons against the North Koreans and the Chinese. This was disapproved by Washington in favor of unlimited aerial bombing using both conventional blockbusters and the new terrifying napalm bombs. The result was the same. The United States dropped more tons of bombs in Korea in 1950 to 53 than in the Pacific during the whole of World War II. The result was described thus by U.S. General Emmett O'Donnell head of the U.S. Air Force Bomber Command, and I quote, everything is destroyed, there is nothing left standing worthy of the name, unquote. Before Congress, General MacArthur unwittingly admitted the exterminationist quality of, war, of the war he waged when he said, and I quote, the war in Korea has almost destroyed that nation of 20 million people. I have never seen such devastation, unquote. It was in Korea that the marriage of racism to advanced technology to produce the overwhelming devastation that is a central characteristic of the American way of war was perfected. Precious white American lives had to be expended as little as possible while taking as many cheap Asian lives as possible through the technology-intensive unlimited aerial warfare. The streak of racial exterminationism emerged again during the Vietnam War labeling the Vietnamese as gooks, a term derived from the term for Filipinos, gugus, in an earlier colonial war, dehumanized them and made all Vietnamese combatant and non-combatant fair game. The Vietnamese conduct of the war of, as a guerrilla war frustrated the Americans and the racist underpinnings of the American military mind allowed Washington to wage a war without restraint in a desperate effort to win it, one that ignored all the principles of the Geneva Convention. The racial dehumanization, dehumanization of the Vietnamese in the American military mind found its classic expression in the words of General Curtis LeMay, head of the Strategic Air Command, who said that, the Ameri that America's aim must be, quote, to bomb the Vietnamese back to the Stone Age, unquote. And Washington did try to do just that. 
1965 to 1969, the U.S. military dropped 70 tons of bombs for every square mile of North and South Vietnam, or 500 pounds for each man, woman, and child. At the same time that they were killing them indiscriminately, Washington was insisting that its mission was to save the Vietnamese from communism and bring American-style democracy to them, and that it would not take no for an answer. Again, U.S. political and military strategy cannot be understood without reference to the subliminal racist assumptions that guided it. The, exact, the costs exacted by a war marked by a racist and extermination um, streak were devastating. Some 3.5 million Vietnamese killed in less than a decade. So let me summarize my main points as I end. One, racism is fundamentally scribed in the capitalist political economy of the United States and is structurally reproduced in its growth and expansion. Two, the structural inscription stems from two original sins, the genocide of Native Americans to clear the social and natural path for the rise and consolidation of capitalism, and the slave labor of Amer African Americans under plantation capitalism that played an essential role in laying the foundations for industrial capitalism. Three, owing to the foundational role of genocide and racism, the ideological legitimation necessary to make the system function has involved a radical denial in the form of a declaration of equality among men and the claim that the aim of US imperial expansion is to extend this equality throughout the world. This four, this tortuous dialectic of genocide, racism, and radical denial gave America's imperial wars in Asia an exterminationist streak. And finally, the American way of war might be described as the marriage of advanced technology and racism that is intended to limit the expenditures of lives on one side while inflicting massive devastation on the other side under the guiding assumption that white lives are precious and Asian lives are cheap. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you, Walden. And also, um, your you're also okay in terms of time, uh, despite the technical problems earlier. So I would now like to call on uh, Liz uh, Fikete. Uh, Liz is ex Executive Director of the Institute of Race Relations, which is based here in London. She has worked at the IRR since 1982. She writes and speaks extensively on aspects of contemporary racism and fascism, refugee rights, um, EU counter-radicalization and anti-terrorism policies, and Islamophobia across Europe. He's also in the advisory editor of IRR's quarterly journal Race and Class, which was set up in the early 1970s. For everyone who remember that period uh, very well, um, we know that that period is a period of rapid mass social and political change, of major liberation struggles in the installation of popular governments in some of the new, newly independent countries of what was then termed the third world. It was also a time of transformative phenomenon of black power and the movement of non-aligned nations. So at least you have the floor now. Well, um, it's always nice to be asked to do something by uh, global justice and I'd just like to start by saying what a, a fantastic um, title for the discussion today, US political crisis and the need for internationalism. 
And Dorothea also asked me to address the whole need for international movement against fascism as well. So that's what I hope I'm going to do. And I've got about six points to make. And the first point is who would have thought that we would be sitting here today when in Minneapolis, uh, the call to disband and defund the police has become a reality. Um, just two days ago, anyone advancing such an abolitionist position would have been described as a liberal do-gooder or a freak, basically. So I agree very much with Abdul that this is an extraordinary moment. It's an exhilarating moment, but also it's a moment that sometimes I think that I'm, I'm, I'm developing a, a, ma a manic personality because I'm also worried about the repression to come. Because as somebody said on the chat earlier, states are not going to roll over. Uh, countries which Walden has described have a history of bombing people back to the Stone Age have have ha, are not going to roll over so the first point that i wanted to make is the protests have changed things overnight and we need to build on this because states are very good at learning across themselves and we need to learn across ourselves too and it's very interesting but the countries which have had the worst responses to the pandemic which have failed to protect their people, United States, United Kingdom, Brazil, Philippines, um, all these countries are linked together uh, and work together. And the second point I want to make in relation to the title, the need for internationalism. Yes, there is a need for internationalism, but there is also an internationalism already in the seeds of this movement, this fantastic movement that we've seen. And that is the issue of police violence has been internationalized. And I see in that a powerful riposte to the internationalisms of states and the way that states work together in international forums to export their weaponry for war and internal repression. Um, Abdul spoke about the ritualization of street protests a lot of uh, my friends and colleagues here have been uh, exhilarated by what's going on, but also like depressed about some of the ways that um, the mainstream in our society, let's say the capitalist enterprises, um, the fashion industry, are trying, trying to take the Black Lives Matter into a brand of fashion. Um, and I think that what we've seen on the streets of the United Kingdom and the streets of Europe with the mass protests in support of um, people in the United States protesting is that a powerful connection is being made between uh, police racism and police violence across the UK and Europe. You will see um, in the UK, we've had um, for what, 20, 30 years, an organization called United Families and Friends, who are the, fa the families of people who have um, died in police custody. We've been working on this issue uh, at the Institute of Race Relations since 1991. In 2014, we reported on 509 deaths of BME people, refugee and migrants in the UK over the, uh, from 1991 to 2014. Unfortunately, these names in the past have not been names known generally. 
and and we're seeing that that really really taking off here that the protests against uh, the the murder of George Floyd are linked to the deaths in custody in the UK of so many people and the same is true in France where 25,000 people protested over the weekend and the case of Adam Trail was highlighted his family led the marches in Paris. He was he suffocated to death when three people, three police officers sat on top of him. And in Germany, where we've seen mass protests, the name of Uri Jallo, who died in 2005 in a, in a police cell, he was actually handcuffed by his hands and his feet to a mattress. And the police managed to say he managed to, while he was uh, tied, he managed to get hold of a lighter in his pocket and burn himself to death. So the fourth point I want to make is that patterns of police violence are international. Death squads are international, actually. One thing that I've been um, really concerned about over the last sort of couple of years is the kind of death squads that we see in the United States, what we see in the Philippines, they're also part of um, what's happening in Europe. Um, in the European context, we're seeing collusion between far-right elements and elements of the military and the police. We saw this in Greece with the rise of Golden Dawn. We see this in Germany, where a far-right group called UNITA is a network of active and former soldiers who stole weapons and ammunition from army supplies uh, and had a plan to eliminate politicians, left-wingers and black people and refugees on day X. The fifth point I want to make is about Trump's speech. You know, when he, he wandered off um, with uh, his uh, security guards um, spraying everyone with tear gas and he took the Bible in his hands. I mean, I've read that he actually had it upside down. So there's a lot of spirituality, obviously, in Donald Trump. But we've seen the same, uh, it's been described as a fascist speech first verging on a declaration of war against American citizens and he's been criticised for hitching religion to the white supremacist cause. It's been happening here in Europe too, where people like Viktor Orban in Hungary and Matteo Salvini in Italy have actually been talking about defending Christian Europe from the Muslim invasion. The targets have most often been migrants, refugees and the Roma. So my sixth and final point is, we don't just need internationalism. We all need to dig down deeper in our specific loco locations for internal connectivity. Within the Black Lives Matter, there is a universal seed. And that universal seed is the universality of police violence across the world. But we also have to dig down deeper to understand that all the different communities who are actually um, suffering in this particular moment of times. We need, as Abdullah said, a race and class perspective. We need to connect with the cleaners, the agricultural workers, the migrant workers, all the people who have been the people whose work has been super exploited during the pandemic and who have carried us through the pandemic. I was recently really privileged to be asked by Kusai Hung Pai, who is an award-winning journalist who's written fantastic books. She's just written a book about the treatment of agricultural migrant workers in Italy. And she asked me 
to write before the book's not out yet but I'm sure Hsai Hung Pai would forgive me from quoting from it. She writes about the Amorta, the silence of suffering that scars the lives of refugees in Europe who are abandoned in farmhouses and shacks and tent cities without electricity, toilets, disinfectant or running water. These people are picking the crops that are keeping fresh vegetables and fresh fruit on our table. She concludes by saying, we need to challenge all social relations within a racist structure. We need the collapse and overthrow of all social relations determined by structural racism. <clears throat> yeah, thank you, Liz. Um, those are really um, strong, strong reminders to all of us. And I think many, uh, or almost all the participants will agree with you that at this point, it is important to look at what's happening with both class and race perspective. I think that was also mentioned by Walden and, and came clearly as well uh, with uh, Abdul's presentation. I just have a follow-up uh, question with Abdul before, before uh, with one each of them before going back uh, and, and have a Q and A. Uh, Abdul, from what you have you have uh, presented, from what you have said, I think the big question for many now uh, is that what are the main political tasks ahead for the struggles in the U.S. and are the existing organizations prepared for it? Uh, it seems that uh, the gr different groups from, from grassroots to national level movements are, are, are all um, mobilizing and organizing and, and attending their protest. So, and, and there's some comments on the chat that says, but who's leading it? Who are the leaders? So are the, are the existing organizations prepared for the tasks that is needed and what are those tasks? You can you. have two to three minutes to, to respond. Thank you. Uh, first of all, what I want to clarify, when I said that there was this diversity happening in the country uh, of young people being black and brown in the majority, this is an urban versus rural dynamic. So in the cities, you have this multicultural development, but in the rural areas where you have the Republican stronghold. And so in the country, the political development is the, the, the urban versus rural. And of course, with the gerrymandering and the organization of representation, state legislatures tend to be more Republican oriented. So there's a right wing base developing in the country. I think that what we have here is a spontaneous movement, an outpouring of people and an absence of political leadership. This is very important because the civil rights movement was based on the historical development of the church and of the trade union legacy. Those two things converge to give leadership to the movement of the 1960s. Today, what we have are a heightening of contradictions, but a decline in trade union leadership, a decline in the traditional black ministerial leadership. And so we have young people uh, emerging without really a political context. This is very similar to what happened uh, after the 1950s when the 60s began without that level of continuity from the past. Uh, you asked the question, are the organizations ready? And I would say that the organizations are trying to get ready. They're not ready. Uh, what we have is a 
situation where we're going to have experiences we never thought we would have. On the one hand, if Trump wins, then we have the development of fascism in the country, open, police state. If he doesn't win, will he leave office? We don't know whether or not there's going to be a transition of power. And even if he does leave office on January the 20th, will the government be prepared because Trump and them are likely to destroy records so they don't get prosecuted? We're going to enter into completely unprecedented times. And so when the working class is called into play historically, what we're talking about is answer the question, what social force is prepared for structural change in the United States? The street force must connect with the working class and with the voting political class in order to transform the country. And that's the crisis that we face. That's the crisis of, of, of leadership. The black leadership of the 60s has now split because many of them have been recruited into the mainstream of society and therefore reformism becomes their main political project. That's the problem that we have today. And I, I think uh, the U.S. movement is not alone with that problem, the, 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 the divisions, the split, and, and which means we really have a big task ahead uh, in organizing and movement building. I just wanted to, to also have a quick uh, question to, to Walden. Uh, from what you have mentioned and from what we are hearing, reading, and watching uh, from Colin Powell, Colin Powell, or ex-Defense Secretary Jim Mattis and other senior military U.S. officials, there is now a split between the senior level military and Trump at the domestic level. Uh, what do you see as the implications of this split in the U.S. military policy globally? Okay, I, I think um, the split is um, on the use of the regular U.S. military uh, not the National Guard, the regular armed forces of the United States um, um, on, uh, uh, you know, to quell domestic protests. And um, so I think that that's where the split is. Uh, and I don't think, and I think Trump to a certain extent has backed off from that. But um, I don't think that that is affecting the way that the both Trump and the military are um, are um, uh, still one in terms of um, consolidating and maintaining, you know, U.S. Um, military hegemony globally, and. Um, uh, you know, certainly uh, in some aspects, like um, in, 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 in some aspects of uh, global policy, uh, for instance, in Korea, uh, the military has been more, um, how would you put it now, uh, hardline uh, in terms of um, not doing anything to destabilize the U.S. presence than, say, Trump. Uh, you know, so I, I think that we, we have this situation whereby domestically, definitely, uh, you do have that split, but you still have uh, a strong 
um, uh, military backing uh, around maintaining uh, U.S. police and military hegemony globally. So that's uh, I, I don't think it's 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 affecting that. And and there are uh, as I said there are uh, you know some areas uh, uh, you know where uh, Trump has been more um, diffident about deploying U.S. military where the military has been more aggressive than Trump in terms of, uh, uh, in terms of being present there. You know, so that would be the way that I would read you know, this situation at, 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 at this point. Thank you, Walden, uh, for, for that response. I have one more question, and, and, and this time I wanted to ask this as well as follow up to what she presented. Um, with the with the protest here as well, and and what happened yesterday, and continuing protests, I think there there will still be some uh, through the, throughout the week. Do you see young black and migrants um, experience of the lockdown here um, with, because of the COVID nineteen as a factor leading to the Black Lives Matter protests in the UK and across Europe? You have mentioned that more uh, BAME uh, people are affected or impacted, especially in the health service as well. Do you see COVID, the handling of COVID-19 in the UK as a factor to, to, to the protests as well? Yes, Dottie, I do think it is a factor, it's one factor. I noticed in the chat that, that some people are concerned about um, the protests and social distancing and the impact um, that it could have on increasing the, the infection rate. But I think we have to roll back and also understand that this eruption has come because of a certain type of policing that has created a pressure cooker situation for many, many young people. So we've been charting the impact of the discriminatory impact of lockdown on IRR News, which is our free um, anti-racist social justice uh, newsletter that goes out every uh, couple of weeks and I would urge you to sign up to that if you possibly can and I think we have to look at things like uh, what's happened in the UK can you believe it in April when there was hardly anyone in the streets in April 2020 there were more stop and searches of black young people than there was in April 2019 what were the Metropolitan Police thinking about that level of repression on the streets a lot of these young people live in high-rise estates where they don't have balconies, when they don't have gardens. And yet when they go and sit in the park, you get the right-wing media doing all these scare stories about selfish young people going out to the park. So you have this. Everyone knows that in terms of fines and arrests in the UK, it was black and migrant and refugee people who have had more arrests and more fines in terms of corona coronavirus regulations. The same is true in France, where I saw a figure today which actually said that on the first down of, day of lockdown, the residents of Saint-Saint-Denis, which is a mainly immigrant area in Paris, got 10% um, of the fines of all the country. So, you know, this has definitely been part of the eruption. But finally, what I want to say is that there's another aspect of the lockdown that we have to consider, that bad as these statistics that I'm giving you are, 
Um, there are certain categories of people who have been made invisible in this crisis and they have su suffered the worst. So that actually you have in migrant and refugee camps, you have in Roma camps in Europe, it hasn't been lockdown, it's been element of martial law with targeted quarantine. So when the military builds separation walls and guards checkpoints with guns, when drones with thermal sensors are you remotely used to take the temperature of residents in Roma settlements, we are not talking about proportionate coronavirus-related restrictions, but we are talking about militarized confinement. Thank you, Liz. Um, I see that um, now we have 28 questions in the Q&A, so I will, I will start uh, clustering and, and, and picking those questions. I would like to mention, because also Elspeth put this on the, on the chat, uh, Elspeth um, asked um, about um, the end of policing, uh, points of the historical process by which policing, regardless of restraining, uh, etc., and good or bad individuals, was set up to maintain the culture of status quo protect those who gain from the status quo, from the rage disturbance of those who are not gainers, how would you bring this into awareness and take down its insidious effects in all of the establishment institutions, police, schools, welfare, medicine, um, etc. There's also a um, question from, from Les as well, Les Levido, um, question to Abdul. Alongside attacks on police infrastructures, protesters have targeted mayors, including Democratic Party members, who claim to support the protests. Slogans include charge the cops, defund the police, perhaps also demilitarize the police, etc. What prospects for protests to achieve such, such aims? And um, I think the one of the last as well, uh, you can this I will try to get at least uh, three to four rows or maybe two to three um, questions, um, rows of questions. For Walden, what reaction has been, has there been in Asia over the death of George Floyd and the level of inequality that affects disproportionately people of color? And do you think it will lead to greater international coordination and support? against such injustices. So I think that's for the time being, and then uh, if the panelists can respond quickly to those questions. Thank you for those questions. Uh, the first point I wanna make is that uh, we have to become serious about how serious the moment is. There's a lot of discussion about how incompetent Trump is, uh, how foolish they are, uh, how inept they are, uh, what if what is happening is a matter of policy? In other words, if you take the pandemic, why are prisons hotbeds and therefore uh, subject to infection and death? Why are uh, homes for the elderly and uh, hotbeds? Why are the meatpacking plants full of immigrant and black workers in rural areas? These, from my vantage point, are policies. Of, uh, of liquidating parts of the population. This is a fascist policy, and it has to do with the power that has been developed in the, Democrat, in the Republican Party, in the police forces, and in the military. 
uh, through the evangelical right-wing uh, development. The question before us is, where can we develop countervailing power in order to confront uh, this development of fascism and this police state orientation? Because it's a very positive thing to defund the police and to uh, get rid of the formal police force in Minneapolis. But clearly there's going to be a police force, a security force representing capital. That, that's not gonna go away. Mm -hmm. uh, so that we have to ask the question, what is the basis of power? Now, a lot of the young people who are in those demonstrations in Minneapolis, for example, are not employed. So the question is raised, how can they identify with the working class? But the question is, there are corporations that run the state of Minnesota, 3M, Minnesota Mining and Manufacturing. These are global corporations that represent who rules in Minnesota. If the street protesters had called a general strike, then those postal workers that marched, those bus drivers that refused to cooperate with the police could have spread out and then you would have had a chokehold on the state and a direct confrontation with capital. That's really the, the kind of progress that we need in the country. I'm personally working with a group called the Southern Workers Assembly. The Southern Workers Assembly is trying to deal with the attack on unions in the South, to organize workers, to confront the black-white struggle. So black and white workers and Latino workers find common class unity. The critical issue in the United States today is class consciousness. They have taught workers that they're in the middle class. If you have a job, you're in the middle class. That illusion of being part of the system. Uh, we don't have working class consciousness in the United States. Uh, and that's what we need to develop. Without that, we're not going to have the basis to build power to confront the power of the capitalist fascist element uh, that we're up against today. Uh, thanks. Um, let me just say in response to the question that was posed, uh, how are people in Asia reacting to this? Uh, one is, uh, I think that it's been very educational for people in Asia, uh, in uh, you know, different countries. Uh, to see, you know, the levels of inequality, the racism in the United States, um, and, you know, the, the real structural class conflicts and racial conflicts that, you know, are part and parcel of, uh, of American society, and how this is sort of... Um, um, you know, going against uh, or, you know, really showing uh, what, you know, you know, the essence of U.S. society is like, that's very different from, you know, this image of this democratic society that, you know, is a melting pot and, and that sort of thing, which, which has been, you know, the, the way that the United States has been presented, um, not just by the government, but you know, by, by, you know, in the movies, in Hollywood and everything else. Uh, that's one thing, you know, the exposure of the deep cleavages of the United States, um, you know, that's uh, been, you know, a very uh, educational uh, uh, process here. The second thing is it's inspirational. 
I, I think, you know, that, you know, you, you, we do not have, um, um, you know, um, mass movements, you know, except in Hong Kong, for instance, that are, you know, from the progressive point of view that, that are out on the streets right now. Uh, we have a situation whereby in most places in, in East Asia, you know, the left has been um, to a great degree marginalized or silent. Uh, and the way that people are coming out in the United States, you know, young people, uh, people of color, uh, but not just them, but young people, you know, from, from different parts, including the white society coming together in protest against the police, you know, that has provided an inspirational lesson to many here, you know, that in fact, um, uh, you know, this, this, this sort of movements, mass movements can in fact, um, um, you know, emerge and challenge the status quo. So my sense is that the impact of what's happening in the United States is going to have, you know, uh, um, you know, uh, a, a strong um, response, you know, from uh, people here uh, to imagine what is possible. Uh, and you, you know, that you do not just stay um, without protest, that in fact, uh, protest uh, uh, is possible. And it is possible to really push, you know, um, uh, you know, in, in terms of uh, achieving social change. So, uh, of course, there's a lot of, you know, where is this going to go in the United States? But I would just like to emphasize that is that it's been very inspiring for people. Yeah, um, I'd just like to speak perhaps to the question about how, how do we bring about an end of police violence and an end to the use of police weaponry against the people. And I think it's really, really important that we realize that this is a period where we have to look to ourselves um, and that we need to start with the now and perhaps not get sort of too hung up with um, the abstract questions. Um, I think Abdul made the point around um, what the defeat of Bernie Sanders uh, meant in the, in the US and how I think there's this knowledge now that there is no hope of change from within the electoral process, from within the political parties. All the political parties are in bed with neoliberalism. There was a brief moment of hope in America, in the UK, but we could break with neoliberalism. There is no break. So the protest has moved to the, st the streets. So one way that we end this use of police weaponry or we tackle it is we start with the now. I did a quick review this morning of what happened around Europe in terms of arrest and the use of police weaponry over the weekend. And okay, I know in America, there's something like 10,000 arrests. In the UK and London, we had the use of horses to charge, uh, charge people, very, very dangerous. In a lot of other countries, in Marseille, Stockholm, Hamburg, Berlin, we have the use of pepper spray and tear gas. Who uses pepper spray and tear gas in the middle of a pandemic? Everybody knows that it causes the most coughing and all these terrible things. It's absolutely criminal. I understand there were over a couple of hundred arrests in Belgium, a hundred arrests in Berlin. So the first thing we need to do is to mobilize around a strategy of self-defense within a commitment 
to strengthening the community outside of the state. There is a radical black and anti-racist tradition in the UK as well. I noticed in the chat, I think majority of the people at this webinar are from the UK. Hello to you all. But you know, we have a tendency in the UK to always look to the US. We even, you know, for young people who denied their own, they've denied a teaching in our curriculum of the anti-racist and anti-imperialist country uh, tradition in this country. We need to read up and learn about our own traditions of police monitoring and self-defense. And which actually those traditions are reasserting themselves in a very positive way at the moment. One small thing that people could do is my colleague Sophia Siddiqui actually put together a reading list of all race and class articles on the connect, on the on the, uh, on the on the whole history of black self-defense and community mutual aid in this country. That piece is called We Starved But We Shared. And it's it's a good start to see. Uh, the lessons from our own history. Actually, I, I wanted to intervene qu quickly on that quest question about the transnational corporations. Yeah. Um, because I, I, I also feel that we're in a moment, you know, Naomi Klein obviously writes about disaster capitalism uh, and, and Abdul spoke about the way that they are using this, this uh, crisis over the pandemic for their own ends, for their own sort of almost like eugenicist ends. But I think we're also seeing that, uh, and we're seeing it very, very clearly in the United Kingdom, the way that private companies are using the COVID-19 crisis to try and take over control of what should be public sector supply chains in the NHS. So that Serco, Palantir, faculty are getting all the contracts for COVID-19 tracing. And what we're really concerned about about at the Institute is that we are going to see another Windrush scandal. We're going to see a second Windrush scandal as, as corporations like Palantir in the US, which is um, owned by a billionaire who is very, very close to Donald Trump and has perfected his wares through immigration policing in uh, America. Can you imagine if people through the COVID-19 track and tracing system are giving their data to companies like Palantir who have a history in immigration policing? Uh, what I would like to say is uh, we haven't hit rock bottom yet. It's going to get worse. That point about the end of, end of privacy, the absolute surveillance state, the incarceration state, all these things are going to intensify. And what I would uh, propose to young people and to people in the street is right now we need to fan out and move from tens of thousands to millions. 90% uh, of the Republican Party is strongly behind Trump. We have to beat them by mobilizing the millions of people in this country that uh, can be mobilized against Trump and against the machinations of capital. The, the reform program that was put forward by Bernie Sanders, along with a WPA type, put people back to work. Uh, is the reform package we need to mobilize the millions of people around, whether it's young people, 
whether it's working class people who are under severe repression and exploitation. And, but in the long run, there has to be revolutionary consciousness, consciousness that a new world is possible. Just imagine if you look at mass media, what you see is dystopia. You see terrible things, but you don't, we don't have this imagination of a world full of justice and love and beauty and freedom. This is something we need to promote. Uh, and it's a youthful promotion, but it's a youthful promotion that cuts across all generations. To dream the impossible dream. These are things that we have to constantly talk about. The religious community has to talk about heaven on earth. We have to talk about morality. Trump has begun to normalize the immoral. Uh, we're in a serious situation here. This is, in fact, a civilizational crisis. And it's not just a crisis in the US, it's a crisis in the world. Every country in the world is facing these class dynamics and these cultural dynamics. Imagine what's happening in India. Imagine what's happening in, in many, many other countries. Uh, so, so my advice is fan out, go door to door, talk to everybody, win over our market share. We are the majority. We are the ones that are supposed to transform the world. When we say we, the social movements, the progressive, how do we widen that we and uh, make it transnational, make it global and, and uh, build a, a movement that will be internationalist in perspective? And, and I think it's also important what all of you have mentioned, that this is the time when uh, sometimes we keep on pushing for new laws, new legislation, we have put forward our ideas. We, we, we presented our blueprint, be it in the party manifesto or all our policy proposals, all the alternatives that we've been saying. But at the same time, more than ever, this is the time for resistance. And that should be a stronger, sharp, internationalist resistance. So how do we build that? I think I will start with Abdul again. Well, I, I would like to answer the question in very concrete terms. Uh, this coming Sunday, uh, the Southern Workers Assembly is having a webinar dealing with meatpacking. Now, the meatpacking industry has a majority of workers are Latinx. And of them, many of them are undocumented. So we have the whole immigration, workers, uh, the question of unity of the workers. Uh, and what's important about this webinar and people who want to access this can just Google Southern Workers Assembly and you will be able to get to the, uh, to the information, is to hear from the workers themselves. I think the, the importance of, uh, of, of developing international consciousness is for people to hear each other. And unfortunately, on the media, we often hear the middle strata and we hear intellectuals and we hear pundits. But we don't often hear working class people talking about themselves and talking to each other. And that's one of the things that the Southern Workers Assembly is trying to do is to create a context where workers can talk to workers. People are intelligent. That's one of the things that, you know, I'm an academic. And uh, often people who go to college 
uh, think they're smart and everybody else is not smart. You think that the working class is without reason. And this is such a fallacy, but it also feeds into uh, the marginalization of workers uh, from, the, from discourse. And it seems to me that what we have to do is we have to open up the uh, agenda so that people can speak for themselves. In the United States, when people like Fannie Lou Hamer, uh, Malcolm X even, the people from the working class and people from the impoverished classes, when they get the mic and start speaking, we can have a different kind of movement. And so next Sunday, the Southern Workers' Assembly is an opportunity, and I welcome everyone to Google Southern Workers' Assembly, get online, and stay on these webinars where the working class people can speak, and that's what we need. Thank you. We tried that very hard, but next time we will have them. Yeah, uh, uh, Walden? Uh, yes, um, uh, I, I think that um, over the last two decades, uh, internationalism has come up and down and up again. We had the anti-globalization movement, uh, and then we had the Occupy movement. Uh, and, you know, so basically, I think that the infrastructure of internationalism is there. There have been networks that have been formed, and I think we really need to get energy back into these networks and drawing in, uh, you know, the, the, the energies of young people that we've seen on the streets, uh, you know, uh, in, in not only in the United States, but in so many other places. Okay, so that's, that's you know, so that international network is there. Let's rejuvenate it with new energies. The second thing is um, the climate, as, as uh, a number of people have said, has this massive potential of bringing us together. Uh, you know, the, the, you know the, the right is, uh, you, you know, uh, you know is, is very anti, uh, you know, is denialist for all intents and purposes. Uh, but most people in fact see that the, the climate is, you know, a, uh, uh, climate change is a massive problem. So, uh, and we really need to be able to, to, to more creatively mobilize on the climate to bring us together. The third thing is, of course, the, women, the, the women's movement is, 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 has been a movement that's been on the upswing, you know, you know, for a couple of years now. And it has taken the leadership, uh, not only with respect to women's issues, but other social issues. So, uh, and, and I think that, you know, that for it to play a leadership role in terms of bringing us together, uh, it's got, it, it is, it, you know, it, it needs to be uh, front and center, um, you, know, uh, you know, too. And then thirdly, uh, uh, finally, I, I think we need to really be bolder in terms of our, what we present, um, whatever we call it, um, you know, uh, we, we are against neoliberalism, we're against capitalism, we are you know, you know, we are, whether we like it or not, we really are moving towards unity around something called socialism. And, you know, that, that sort of, you know, that sort of uh, articulation of what we're all about, about justice, about democracy, 
um, and peace, th this is something that extremely important to be able to move and create an inspirational um, you know, agenda uh, uh, right now. So, so the, the, and we don't have much time. Uh, there's something that, you know, nature abhors a vacuum, okay? And unless progressives can really globally present the winning alternative, you know, the right is there. And Liz has already, and, and, and I, I think we've seen how, you know, um, you know the right can, uh, in fact, uh, be very clever at picking some of our issues. Uh, like we were the ones who articulated the critique of globalization, but it was the right wing in many ways that harvested it with its sort of uh, nationalistic version of globalization. So, so we, we, we must, you know, we, we really must um, uh, um, move very quickly because, um, you know, time is of the essence uh, in, 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 in this process. So um, that's, that's uh, and I, I, I therefore share, you know, the, the concern of Abdul uh, and Liz, you know, that, re that really the, the progressives must really be able, you know, uh, to, to, to organize uh, in a way that really appeals, you know, to people, uh, and not just intellectuals, but to working people. Uh, I'm going to answer the question about internationalism, but I've been feeling really bad for the last five minutes because I think there was a young person who asked the question about what they can do when they don't have a right to vote and they might not be able to uh, get to street protests. So I wanted to speak sort of directly to that young person, actually. Um, paradoxically, when I said how great it was to um, have a discussion about the need for internationalism, I've been thinking, as we've been talking, about the need to start with the local. Uh, so what I wanted to say to the younger people here is that you don't have to be at the barricade to start a revolution. You don't have to be part of an organised left party or a trade union. You just start from where you are at this particular moment. Um, the local is incredibly important for challenging the logic of neoliberalism and fascism, which the logic is that people who have failed consumers don't matter, they're non-people. The logic is that if you have a mental illness, that if you are homeless, that if you are from a particular racialized minority, you're life unworthy of life. So all of us, each and every one of us, can start challenging that at a local level through mutual aid, through working in our schools, um, working with young people, working in youth centers, whatever. You know, there's so many wise sayings out there. Only starts, it only takes a pebble to create an avalanche. Uh, the smallest spark can start a prairie fire. So we can all be part of that. And that concludes today's podcast. Thanks to our guests and thank you for listening. To find out more and join our campaign to ensure that the COVID-19 pandemic doesn't increase global inequality, visit our website at globaljustice.org.uk forward slash COVID-19.
You can also check out and register for any upcoming live public meetings at globaljustice.org.uk forward slash events. And we'll of course continue to release them on our podcast platforms. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you have, please tell someone about it and share it on social media. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at globaljustice.uk. Stay safe.